is Johnny. Uh, go to church here. Uh, have the enormous privilege of getting to lead, uh, help lead an organization called Stand By Me. A uh, huge part of my job is, is getting to work with kids. Uh, for any of you that work with kids, you'll know that there is something uh, about spending time with children that reminds you of the wonders of the world. Um, I was reminded about that over the summer because uh, even little things, going out into the back garden and having to cut the grass becomes an adventure when kids are involved. And, and I guess as I was thinking about that, it's that sense of how quickly we can lose the wonder of, of little things in life. Um, and I was reminded about this earlier this year. Uh, back in February, um, part of my job, I, I travel, I visit our kids around the world, and I was heading off to, to a country out in Southeast Asia called Nepal, which you'll all know, biggest mountains in the world. Um, and as part of traveling out there, uh, there was one key thing that I wanted just, just for me, and that was this. I wanted a window seat on the plane. That's all I wanted. That's all I had planned for. That was my little thing that as you fly into Kathmandu, you literally fly in and amongst the Himalayas and you see them all for about 20 minutes and it is glorious. So I booked myself on. I got myself a window seat. It was absolutely perfect. Uh, arrived late into Istanbul, had to make a quick transfer, had about 15 minutes, ran through, handed the guy a piece of paper that I had printed out at home called my boarding pass. And he took it and he put it on the machine. I was the last person to the flight. That's how late I was. He put it on the machine and the wee scanner thing went red and it went. Arr. And I was like, oh no, what have I, have I printed the wrong thing? Have I brought one of Laura's things? What have I done? I was like, scan it again. So he scanned it again. It went Arr. red. I was like, oh no. And he says, ah, oh, Mr. Farrell, I can tell you what it is. We've had to move your seat. I was like, don't don't you go there. I was like, this is the thing that I wanted. And I could feel this anger building up within me. Now, it was a righteous type of anger. I was like, you, you can't take this away from me. That's, that's the seat that I chose. And I was literally just about to speak when he said this, we've upgraded you to business class. I was like, oh yes. I was like, I've never been so glad that I kept my mouth shut. <laughs> And at that moment, I realized something. There's some people that when they travel, they travel and, and they dress for the upgrade, you know? You pull out the suit that you haven't worn in months and you put it on and, and you still sit in economy. And I'm not that guy. I was wearing an old pair of tracky bottoms with gloss paint on the knee and a really old stinky hoodie. So I turned up to the flight and they'd scored out my seat and written on Enviro 2B. And I was like, they're never going to believe me. Stepped onto the plane, and when I got onto the plane, said to the woman, I was like, look, the guy back there at the gate, he said that I've been upgraded to, to business class. And she said this, welcome aboard, Mr. Farrell. <laughs> I was like, I have a name. Like back in economy, you don't have a name. You just, you're a number. And got onto the flight and everything. It couldn't have been more different. You come, you sit down, they bring you a little tray of drinks. You can choose what drink you want. Your seat reclines like one of those dentist chairs, but far more comfortable. You press a wee button, down into a bed. I was like, this is phenomenal. And the whole time through it, I was just completely wrapped up in wonder. One of my colleagues, when they heard that I got bumped, they were like, what's the best thing about business class? You know you're from Northern Ireland when your answer is tea in a mug. I was like, that is the best thing about business class. But here's the thing, everybody else had lost that sense of wonder. 
you could tell because they were used to travel in this way. And I knew they'd lost that sense of wonder because as soon as they dimmed the lights, everyone hit the button and they put their bed down and they went to sleep. Not me. Up a bit, down a bit, middle a bit, up a bit, down a bit, middle a bit. I didn't want to sleep the whole night because I was so captivated in the wonder of what was going on. And, and I guess if there's that risk that we can lose wonder with little things in life, then is there that sense that we can almost run the risk of losing the wonder of what God wants to do through our lives? And that's what I want us to think about this morning. You see, life is the story of Scripture. Right from the very beginning, when God creates Adam and Eve, we're told in Genesis that God breathes into man and he becomes a living soul. That it's God's breath that brings us life. It's that connection with the Creator that makes us truly alive. And we know the story. We know what happens that Adam and Eve go on to sin. And, and the, the promise that the enemy has basically said is, is going, you know what, you're not going to lose your life. And I wonder what it must have been like in that moment just after they'd eaten the fruit when they were still alive. There wasn't a crash of lightning and they dropped dead. They, they must have thought maybe... Maybe the creator was exaggerating. We're, we're still very much alive. And yet as God looked in on that moment, he saw that they had lost the one thing that made them truly alive. That connection with the father was lost. And so throughout the Old Testament, we have this story about the promise of life, the promise of a savior. And right at the start of John's gospel, where we're going to jump into today, the thing that I love is this. Of all the things that he could start the gospel with, he says this. He says, in him was life, and that life was the light to all mankind. He could have talked about the miracles. He could have talked about walking on water. He could have talked about feeding 5,000. And yet for John, he goes, no, in him I have found life. And then Jesus' infamous words a couple of chapters later, that if we give up everything, if we follow after him, we will have everlasting life. It's this picture of life that runs right through the scriptures. And God calls us to life. He calls us to live a life for him. He calls us to live a life that embraces the wonder of what the Father has for us. And so this morning, we're going to look at, at an infamous story of the Bible. And I hope that whether it's the first time that you've heard this story or the hundredth time that you've heard this story, that in going through it, that we don't lose the wonder of what's happening. Because this is a story that played out in people's lives. This was a real life moment. And so we're going to jump in uh, to John 11 this morning. Let me read a few verses to you. It says this. In the village of Bethany, there was a man named Lazarus and his sisters Mary and Martha. Mary was the one who would anoint Jesus' feet with costly perfume and dry his feet with her long hair. One day, Lazarus became very sick to the point of death. So his sisters sent a message to Jesus. Lord, our brother Lazarus, the one you love, is very sick. Please come. When he heard this, he said, This sickness will not end in death for Lazarus, but will bring glory and praise to God. This will reveal the greatness of the Son of God by what takes place. Now, even though Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, he remained where he was for two more days. Finally, on the third day, he said to his disciples, come, it's time to go to Bethany. It's this slightly strange moment that we have. Uh, we see the problem. We, we hear, as Jesus heard, about his friend, one of his best friends, who is sick. 
And we know the power of God. We know that God could step in and in a moment he could make him well. And yet we have these words that, that almost seem a little bit jarring. It's kind of one of those moments where Jesus doesn't behave how you would expect Jesus to behave. That he stops and he waits. He spends two days. We're not told what he did on those two days. Lots of scholars in the Bible have come up with lots of different reasons. They've maybe tried to place where he was geographically and what might have been going on and all the rest. But for whatever reason, Jesus waits. And I believe that it's because he wants to walk in the Father's timing and in the Father's will. Um, there's an interesting thing that I was reading uh, during the week, this kind of old Jewish thought uh, around resurrection about what happens after you die. And, and the thought was this, that for three days after a body was laid in the tomb, it was like, like the soul just kind of lingered in the hope that it could come back. It says this uh, in one of the ancient Hebrew texts, for three days the soul goes to the grave thinking the body may return, but when it sees the figure of the face changed, it goes away and leaves it. And for whatever reason we have, Jesus chooses to wait. Maybe it was this sense of him wanting to show, actually, this is not just merely resuscitation that's about to happen. This is the power of the Father. This is resurrection unfolding before your eyes to take away any excuses that could have taken the glory away from the Father. He knows that the Father's timing and the Father's will are perfect. And yet in the midst of it for those couple of days, we have Mary and Martha, her waiting, her seeing their brother decline, her seeing their brother die. And for them, waiting on God is the hard work of hope. They're holding out this hope until eventually Jesus arrives. We'll pick it up in verse 20. It says this. It says, when Martha heard that Jesus was approaching the village, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed in the house. Martha said to Jesus, my Lord, if only you had come sooner, my brother wouldn't have died. But I know that if you were to ask God for anything, he would do it for you. Jesus told her, your brother will rise and live. She replied, yes, I know he will rise with everyone else on resurrection day. Martha, Jesus said, you don't have to wait until then. I am the resurrection and I am life eternal. Anyone who clings to me in faith, even though he dies, will live forever. And the one who lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Then Martha replied, yes, Lord, I do. I've always believed that you are the anointed one, the son of God who has come into the world for us. Then she left and hurried off to her sister Mary and called her aside from all the mourners and whispered to her, the master is here and he's asking for you. So when Mary heard this, she quickly went off to find him. For Jesus was lingering outside the village at the same spot where Martha met him. Now when Mary's friends who were comforting her noticed how quickly she ran out of the house, they followed her, assuming she was going to the tomb of her brother to mourn. When Mary finally found Jesus outside the village, she fell at his feet in tears and said, Lord, if only you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. We have this incredible moment, this incredible glimpse into God in our grief. Uh, that Mary and Martha, those two real polar opposite characters and, and how they respond in their grief and how they respond in that moment and yet how God encounters them in a personal, in a real way. 
What I love is that, that Martha gets word that Jesus is coming and she just leaves everything. She runs to be with him. And as she gets to him, she has questions. She talks about the fact that she knows that if he had been here, things could have been different. But you can see her hope kind of rising. She goes, I know that if you ask anything of the father, he can give it to you. And Jesus says that her brother will rise. And she goes, yeah, I know, but that's a future event. That's not the here and now. It's like her hope rises and then just as quickly it starts to fall again. And for Martha, she has this incredible encounter with Jesus where he points to what's about to happen. He points to the hope that there's about to be. And she runs back and she goes to her sister Mary. And to Mary, she says what I think are some of the most beautiful words uh, in all of the Bible. The master is here and he's asking for you. What an incredible moment that must have been. In the midst of her hurt, in the midst of her grief, that the master is here and he's asking for you. And I love this because Jesus meets both of them in exactly the same place. He waits knowing full well that Mary will come too. And when Mary comes, she raises the same, the same question that Martha has had. You know that this is a conversation they've had. If only you'd been here, things could have been so much different. That, what must that conversation have been like over those few days? God, if only the, if Jesus had turned up, things would have worked out differently. And yet something incredible is about to unfold. Move on a few verses further. It says this. When Jesus looked at Mary and saw her weeping at his feet and all her friends who were with her grieving, he shuddered with emotion and was deeply moved with tenderness and compassion. He said to them, where did you bury him? Lord, come with us and we'll show you, they replied. Then tears streamed down Jesus' face. Seeing Jesus weep caused many of the mourners to say, look how much he loved Lazarus. Yet others said, isn't this the one who opens blind eyes? Why didn't he do something to keep Lazarus from dying? In the midst of what is unfolding, we're about to find beauty in the brokenness. Because here we have a God who doesn't stay distant. Here we have a God who doesn't keep himself out of life's problems. But here's a God who stands with people in the midst of their problems, in the midst of their hurt. And he comes and he draws alongside. And in the shortest verse of the Bible, Jesus wept. And he knows what's going to happen. He knows what comes next. He knows what the Father is going to do through him. And yet in it, he sees the brokenness of the world. He sees what was robbed of Adam and Eve, what was taken from them. He sees the suffering that humanity has gone through. And even though he knows what's coming next, he knows that this is not the Father's intention. That our souls are not destined or designed for despair. And in this moment, what happens is Jesus goes to the tomb and he tells them, open the tomb. And, and Martha herself, she says, Lord, it's been four days. The stench will be unbelievable. And Jesus says, open the tomb. The stone is rolled away. And in that moment, Jesus, in a loud voice, after praying to the Father, shouts, Lazarus, come out. There's this brilliant quote by one of the early church fathers that says, had he not said Lazarus's name, he'd have emptied every grave in Israel. How incredible is that? He speaks and Lazarus comes out and he stumbles out. What must that moment have been like as his eyelids flickered, as his veins were filled with warm blood, as his lungs reinflated, as he took his first steps into a new life? 
And as he steps out, Jesus says some incredible words. He says, let him loose. Let him loose. Because he was not designed for this. He was designed for life. And we have this beautiful picture of resurrection, of what God does for us, of the hope that we have, that Jesus has come to bring us life and life in its fullness, a God who meets us in our brokenness, but doesn't want to keep us there, a God who sees our hurt, but brings hope into those moments. One of the things, if not the thing that I love the most about God is that God rewrites the story. He did it for Lazarus, and, and we're seeing that played out in Muhammad's story. A story of so much hardship, a story of so much heartache, and yet in the midst of it, hope. And the thing that I love is that God uses us in how he rewrites the story for other people. That as we step into life, as we live the life that he has called us to, his resurrection power is released in the life of, of others. And we have this incredible hope because when we fast forward, Lazarus's story gives us a picture of a much bigger story. Uh, just nine chapters later in John's gospel, we find that Jesus and another Mary are standing outside a tomb, but they're not waiting for anyone because it's been emptied for everyone. And Jesus, as he stands alongside Mary, she doesn't even realize who he is. She thinks that he's the gardener. Where have you put his body? Just tell me where it is. I'll go and get it. And then he speaks her name. And in that moment, she realized that hope is restored. She runs back to the disciples and she says, I have seen the Lord. He is risen to life. And you know what the beauty of the story is? It's not just that he is risen. It's that because of that, we are risen to. That this life that God longs for us to live, to live in the fullness of the power that he gives us is something that is right there for us to grab hold of. It's Paul that says these words uh, in Romans 6, or sorry, in Romans 8. He says, if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. These are some of the most phenomenal words in the Bible. What Paul is telling us is that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the same spirit that God places within us to experience life. That in that moment when Jesus died on the cross, when he took all of the world's anger, when he took all of the world's hatred, all of the world's, world's suffering, all of the world's lust, everything that was wrong and broken in the world, and, and when that was placed on his shoulders, that it didn't have the power to hold him down. And that power, God gives to us. He breathes into us life so that we can step out as witnesses to, as symbols of the resurrection of people who have moved from, from brokenness to wholeness, as people who have moved from death to life, as people who have moved from hardship to hope because of Jesus. And we have this to take to the world. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, as much as this feels like the start of a new season, hopefully we don't lose the wonder of what God can do in us and through us in the lives of others as we step forward as people who are salt and light to a world that is so desperately in need. 
How might that transform your friendships? How might that transform your workplace as we get God's vision for what he has for us this year? It would be wrong of me to to finish without mentioning perhaps one of those ways uh, that God is rewriting the story is, um, is through this trip to Ethiopia. It's like the worst kept secret in church, isn't it? We've talked about it a bit now. Um, but at Easter 2019, uh, we're going to take a team just like we did 18 months ago uh, out to this incredible town of Bokati where Muhammad lives uh, to step into the story, uh, to be there for 10, 11 days, to walk alongside some of these incredible kids that we have the privilege of, of looking after and caring for. That as we step into that story, we step into it to see how God might rewrite little bits of the story through us being there. As we get to go and as we get to speak hope and life over these incredible children. And hopefully for you, maybe if that's something that that God has been stirring in you over time, then um, we're going to have a little evening, the 19th of September. I'm sure we'll ping this out over social media and things like that. But if you have a phone, stick it in your diary, 7 o'clock. And fear not, by turning up, you don't have your passport in hand and tickets printed and all the rest. You're just coming to find out uh, a little bit more. Um, I, I can always be accused of bias in these things because I work for Stand By Me. But let me say this, a trip to Bokaji will never return you as the same person as when you left. Because you encounter people like Muhammad. You encounter stories that God is in the process of rewriting. And in that, for that short space of time, we get to go and breathe life where there's so much hardship, where there's so much difficulty. Let's pray. God, we thank you that it is our connection with you that makes us truly alive. God, that anything short of that is is just existence. God, we thank you uh, for the story of Lazarus. We thank you for that incredible uh, restoration, that incredible resurrection. We thank you for your power so evidently seen at work. God, we thank you that it was a picture of what was to come, what was available to all of us, that we can step into life and life to the full because of Jesus. God, help us to grab hold of that with two hands this year. God, help us to realize that that Jesus paid too much of a price for us to simply exist, but that he paid it so that we could and in living that we might be examples and witnesses and light to a world of where to find meaning in life, of where to find hope and resurrection. Father, we pray that you would use us this year. God, as you rewrite the story in our lives, that you would rewrite the story in the lives of those that we know and that we love. We pray all of this in Jesus' name.